Hooray, hurrah. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, takes to the ether, this time from the Porpoise of Fruititude, located somewhere in Lower California. Jennifer's here. Hello. Hi. <laughs> uh, and we're playing Laura Nero. Yes, Laura Nero wrote Wedding Bell Blues for the Fifth Dimension. It wasn't Burt Bacharach. Thank you for the millions of emails I got <laughs> correcting me in that regard. Laura Nero was um, a lesbian, a feminist. Um, uh, she stood up for social causes, and she was mm-hmm. an all-around right-on person. She wrote lots and lots of hits for the Fifth Dimension, including Stone Soul Picnic, and she wrote hilariously Barbara Streisand's Christian hit, which is called Stony End. <laughs> and uh, she's not with us anymore. She uh, swirled off into the stars in the 90s in Ashkenazi. Um, she succumbed to ovarian cancer, was yes. it? Like so many Ashkenazi women, like Madeline Kahn and Gilda Radner. Um, but she was lovely, and as you can see, her own singing voice was sensational. And she has many albums on her own, too. Fantastic. Uh, we're very elated this week and excited because um, so many great things have happened. We had well, basically the most important election in about a hundred years <laughs> in the United States, and by that I mean the turnout was just tremendous. Um, young people voted in their numbers, women voted in their numbers. Yeah, white people, men and women, could really you know take a look at themselves. Uh, but yes. aside from that, I thought the showing was marvelous. Um, it was a gigantic win for the Democratic Party, an unbelievably diverse slate of people. So many firsts. We're, we're, we're going to get right into it. Uh, um, let's see here. Nope. We're, I'm, we're not well, getting one, right one person <laughs> I'd, I'd like to highlight is uh, since we were in Charleston, West Virginia in June, uh, amazingly, they voted for Amy Schuler Goodwin, the uh, young woman Democrat will be their new mayor. That's just fantastic. Um, where did you which town was it? Charleston. Oh, my West God. Virginia. Uh, we were there and we were talking about her mm-hmm. when, after we came back from there. And, and Sharon, the the head of the women's clinic there, thought that uh, Goodwin had a chance, and of course Sharon was right. Their governor is so awful, and uh, Sharon was right. Uh, it's so exciting that she, Miss um, Goodwin, Goodman, is it Goodwin? Goodwin got in as mayor there because she's a real um, progressive liberal, and I think Charleston needs a hand up. It was. Um, it, it had a lot of they, issues going they on there. have so many health issues, and the uh, current mayor had taken away their needle exchange program yeah, which during is, a heroin epidemic. But that's, you know, Republican policy. Um, cruelty and not um, paying attention to any facts, but just boldly forging ahead um, where Red Deck... Uh, and a related uh, a women's clinic uh, article, a Republican candidate campaigned outside the Pink House, the only women's clinic in Mississippi that's in Jackson that we visited last year. And he uh, was defeated, uh, sadly, by uh, another Republican. But uh, the idea that he would lead his campaign uh, to denounce women's health issues outside of their only clinic. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what he's running on. They don't have anything... To run on except cruelty to other people, I think, and particularly women and people of color, because let's be honest, the Pink House and Jackson caters overwhelmingly to black women. That's who their clientele is. Whereas in West Virginia, um, 
the women's clinic in West Virginia is not. It's it's largely white. Uh, the the cruelty of that and the optics of being a white man in a suit standing Screaming. in front of yeah yeah it's, Screaming it's just horrible. Um, let's get out all the good news here. Uh, black girl magic. This is from uh, the Guardian newspaper. Nineteen black women ran for judge in Texas County, and all nineteen won. And there's an awesome picture of them all <laughs> in their judicial black garb. Victories mark unprecedented levels of success for black female judicial candidates in Harris County, which includes Houston. Um, they campaigned together under the slogan Black Girl Magic. Their victories mark an unprecedented level of success for black female judicial candidates in the county. With a population of four and a half million, Harris County is bigger than 24 U.S. states. Uh, Democrats won all 59 judicial races in Harris <laughs> County in Tuesday's midterm. One of the most eye-catching, the longtime incumbent Republican County Judge Ed Emmett the county chief executive lost to Lena Hildago, a 27-year-old first-time candidate who immigrated from Colombia as a teenager. Yay. Yeah, it's just a sensational story, and you can read all about it. Um, there's a um, analysis by the American Constitution Society that finds that white men made up 30% of the Texas population, but 58% of the state court judges. So it, it, it's just sensational what happened there. And also, turning away an old white guy for a 27-year-old Latinx woman is just marvelous. Uh, and that makes me think of Colin Allred, the civil rights lawyer, former NFL player, African-American man, won in Dallas against an 11-term Republican Pete Sessions. Isn't that fantastic? Texas really, as much as everybody was whining about Beto losing, first of all, Beto did really well, and he didn't lose by very much. And to be honest, he should have stayed in the race like... Um, Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams. Well, his campaign also boosted these other campaigns, yeah, like they, Colin did. Allred. And he gave away a lot of money. Yeah. He, he did spread the wealth around. He, he ran a fabulous campaign. But rather than focus on him losing like so many people have, um, look at how much Texas changed. Oh, my goodness. To get that many judges of that aren't old white men in Harris County, Houston's so um, diverse. It's really not the first a, two Latinas. Yes. I mean, we, got, we have a million things to go over. It's fantastic here. Cassie Levesque feels like she's part of the movement, a movement where young people in New Hampshire are getting their voice heard in politics. Known for her efforts to increase the marriage age in New Hampshire as part of a Girl Scout project, she was elected to the State House of Representatives on Tuesday. Um, the headline is so brilliant. It's from the Concord Monitor. Girl Scout who pioneered child marriage bill elected <laughs> to New Hampshire. Girl Scout. Um there were 23 uh, um, state representatives under the age of 35. Now there'll be 42 under the age of 40 after Tuesday. By the way, this young woman, Ms. Levesque, 19 years old <laughs> in the state house. That's just sensational. In 2017, as a senior at Dover High School, Levesque began her push to raise the marriage age 13 for girls and 14 for boys as part of a Girl Scouts project that earned her the gold award. Her grandmother and great-grandmother entered childhood marriages in their teens to escape abuse at home. It's pretty shocking in this country what the marriage ages are in different states. Yes. Um, in any case, as the legislature she's determined to revisit the state marriage age, bump it up to 18, she wants to make college more affordable and bring in and keep young people in the state. She said having a young person work on bills that affect young people will be an asset to the House. Dig this. In 2015, the average age of a New Hampshire state legislator was 66. Average. Mm. Which means it wasn't at all. It means there was a million uh, people over that age. And I'm not an ageist. Uh, uh, older people, uh, myself included, <laughs> can certainly get the job done. Um, but no. Boo. 
Boo. The reason why we're in this mess, and if you can't handle this message, you haven't, you've been listening to the show uh, not long enough, is uh, old white men. I, old white men have had their chance. As Andrea Jenkins said in the episode from the ACLU in Washington, old white men had their chance. They fucked up. Now it's our turn. So I, I like to think of that. Andrea Jenkins sits on the... Speaking city. of Andrea Jenkins, two trans women uh, made history in New Hampshire winning election to state legislature. Look yeah. at New England go crazy. Right? But seriously, didn't you say to me everyone in New England from Massachusetts all the way to Maine was Democrat? I think there is one race still to be decided and then it will be uh, all 21 representatives would be... Democrat. LePage was overthrown in Maine for governor. Here, what, who were the two? Oh, on the state legislature in yes. New Hampshire. Isn't that fantastic? Two trans women? Yes, it is fantastic. We're going to get to everything here. There's so much good news. Um, and it feels just fantastic. The North Dakota Republican who sponsored the law disenfranchising Native Americans loses an election to a Native American. <laughs> Republicans managed to beat Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, but down the ballot. But let's not focus on that either. Look at all the Senate seats people gained, including um, Jackie Rosen in uh, Nevada and nine women governors. Nine mm-hmm. women governors. There's, there's never been this much female representation in the Congress, in the Senate, in the House, uh, 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 in the uh, Congress. And in the state houses and legislatures and on the judgeships, then there has been in this election. And that's what makes everything different. Um, let's see here. North Dakota Republicans paid a steep price for the lengths they went to defeat High Camp. Uh, they, they, yeah, they messed with her because she tried to help people here. A bipartisan problem solver, High Camp did a lot of time in the Senate. She expanded the Violence Against Women Act to cover Native American tribes. We talked about her in the last episode. She was unseated by um, Representative. Uh, GOP rep Kevin Kramer, a hard right ideologue who is so reductive that he says attempted rape isn't a crime. Um, That's Mm. what they're selling. They have nothing else to sell. North Dakotans didn't anticipate what a massive backlash there would be to their skullduggery. Immediately after the Supreme Court let the law take effect, Democrats crowdfunded a massive effort to get street addresses and updated ID cards for Native Americans in the state. Native turnout was higher than 2012 in several places. Native voters flipped three red seats blue, including House Majority Leader Al Carson. The most poetic justice of the night, because we talked about it on the last episode about the vote um, rigging in uh, North Dakota against Native Americans. Randy Baining, a GOP state rep who sponsored the Native American disenfranchised law in the first place, was unseated by Ruth Anna Buffalo, a Native American. It's hard to call the midterm results a positive thing for Democrats. Of course, why would anyone ever call anything positive for Democrats? But even though they lost in the Senate, they can take satisfaction in knowing that the Republican law passed to deny Native Americans the vote was an utter failure that woke a sleeping giant. And we congratulate Ruth Anna Buffalo for unseating Randy uh, Baining in North Dakota. That's just part of the groovy news. The Four Directions group uh, did a great job of trying to get Native Americans IDs, but uh, there was just so much push against them being allowed to vote. Oh, it was incredible. They, as stated before, they really have nothing to run on. Um, the big push up to the midterms was this. Um, you know, elusive migrant uh, caravan that was going to attack us. So that disappeared the minute the election was over and they lost a million seats. Mm -hmm. And now you don't even hear about it. It's not even a talking point. He ran away because he he knew that it didn't sell. The soldiers are there at the border, but they don't have any concrete orders. And they're eating out of um, 
what we used to call sea rations, MREs. They're eating out of flow packets and they're entrenched down there. 5,000 shocking. It's a division of guys. Yeah. And it's really awful. And women. Um, Shannon Watts, who is one of the great gun control activists, she's the founder of Moms Demand, the army of every town, right? Um, You all know about Lucy McBath's amazing win, and we're going to get to Lucy McBath in a minute. I just wanted to skim through a couple of these excellent ones. Moms Demand, Lucy McBath's son, Jordan, was shot for listening to loud music by a white man. She won and is sitting in Newt Ginrich's seat in Georgia. She is a congressperson from Georgia, Lucy McBath, on January 3rd, will um, be wandering the halls uh, where Newt Ginrich used to wander. Um, Lucy McBath won. Uh, Her Moms Demand colleagues are so proud of her. Did you know that 16 other Moms Demand volunteers and gun violence survivors, all of these women um, either survived a shooting or had relatives that were killed in a shooting, um, won their races too. How about that? That's not mm-hmm. a story that anyone puts on uh, the main mainstream news. Linda Harriet Gothright joined Moms Demand in New Hampshire because her brother-in-law was shot in 1980. Um, she's a state rep. She's 68 with 10 grandchildren. Victoria Steele became an Arizona state rep after Gabby Gifford's mass shooting. As a Native American woman and domestic violence counselor, she'll protect marginalized women from gun violence as a state senator in Arizona. That's Victoria Steele. Yet another Native American woman, Mm -hmm. by the way. Nicole Clowney, an Arkansas mom demand volunteer, became active after state lawmakers passed a bill allowing guns on campus. She's a professor at the University of Arkansas. Now she's a state senator in Arkansas. Denise Garner, uh, she's also in Arkansas. She's an oncology nurse. She um, took on the A-rated NRA lawmaker who forced Arkansas guns on college campuses, Charlie Collins. She kicked his butt. And now has his seat in the state legislature. This is all very exciting. Catherine Stefani um, is from California. She won re-election as District 2 Supervisor in San Francisco. And uh, her uh, policy that she wants to put forward is to prohibit concealed carry at city protests. Um, Nevada volunteer Linda Cava... I'm going to get that wrong. Cavazos? Cavazos. Is a former teacher and current mental health professional... Um, she was instrumental in collecting petition signatures to pass the state's background initiative in 2016. Nevada, as you know, has a serious gun problem. She won re-election as a Nevada County Clark school board trustee. That's where everything starts as we urge you guys to run for office. School board trustees, um, state senators, state assembly people. We won't go through all of them, but if you go to Shannon Watts' um, Twitter feed, and she is at Shannon Watts, um, you can read all about them. 16 women who ran on gun Fantastic. reform platforms are in state houses, Congress, and um, we're very excited to see them in the well, Board of Supervisors. we're desperate for serious change. Yeah. As I said, they ran on a fake immigrant caravan. Then they ran on racism. Then they ran on trying well, to keep black people and Native Americans from voting. I, I meant on the gun issue. Oh, yes. It's critical and has been for so long. But none, no one on the Republican side is bringing anything rema- uh, remotely serious to it. <laughs> no. They're not uh, suggesting legislation. They're not. Um, it's really pathetic. Uh, and all these women are. Okay, let's see. Here's some really groovy articles here that I want to get to. Um, if it'll, yeah. The year of the woman, 100 female candidates win seats in Congress and make history. <laughs> The Center for American Women said 31 first-time House members, seven more than the Year of the Woman in 1992. You may recall it was called the Year of the Woman because Clarence Thomas was put on the Supreme Court the year before. 
And now we have another situation where Brett Kavanaugh was put on the court. And look at the landslide of women. The surge was largely driven by Democrats. The party took control of the House that account for 84 of the 96 women to serve in the House so far, including 30 of the 31 newcomers. Women will represent two-thirds of the districts that Democrats flipped. That's the story, I think. If the Republicans had flipped um, uh, 80 houses and 60 of the people that did it were women, wouldn't that be the lead story in the news instead of a temper tantrum orange 45 through or the other nonsense that we have to deal with? Next year's freshman class will include women of color who've broken barriers in uh, their states, plus the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. Two Alex- women. Two women. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and um, Ms. Kankauer from, I'll get to her in a minute, from Iowa. Mm -hmm. I got her name wrong just now, and I'm sorry. 11 women senators were elected, nearly all Democrats. Marsha Blackburn was also elected. Um, She's a uh, Republican, um, but she's from Tennessee. So yet another woman on the other side. Jackie Rosen ousted Dean Heller. Um, Blackburn and Rosen will be joined by another freshman woman, but we don't know who it is yet because Kristen Sinema, as of this uh, recording, which is on... uh, Sunday, November Sunday, November eleventh, Armistice Day or celebrate uh, Remembrance Day, um, is still having the votes counted out between her and McSally it's in Arizona. Very close. This would be Jeff Flake's vacanted seat. Wouldn't if that she be wins, wonderful? it'll be a bisexual woman with no experience in government, <laughs> who's just tremendous. Um, so she's leading and right she now. She might take an, an, a stand on issues as yeah. opposed to Jeff Flake who looks stern and sometimes concerned around his eyes. And then when two <laughs> women yelled at him in the elevator, still voted for Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Nine women have won governor's races. Nine women. 80% of the voters said it was very or somewhat important to see more women elected. And this is a line that I liked in this article from CNN. It was a higher priority for women than men, but not by much. Men want to see this too. Women smash records in the election cycle. In terms of the number who filed to run, the number of women who became their party's nominees for House, Senate, and governors, and the number of women running against women in general. How about that? Mm-hmm. Women running against women. It was two women in Arizona. Uh, for the first time in history, Americans could elect blah, 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 blah. Here we go. Let's get into the good stuff. Michelle Lejean Grisham, the U.S. representative from Mexico, became the first Democratic Latina governor. Sharice Davids, a Kansas Democrat, member of the Ho-Chunk Nation, and Deb Holland, a New Mexico Democrat, and member of the Pueblo of Laguna tribe, were elected as the first Native American congressman. So exciting. That's so wonderful. In the history of the United States, though. It, it, it's shocking. To know that. They're the first two Native American women. And their tribe's um, names are so unbelievably great. The Pueblo of Laguna in New Mexico and the Ho-Chunk in Kansas. And Kansas is supposed to be reliably red, remember? They elected a woman governor and a lesbian. Native American. Yeah. Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, uh, Tlaib have become the first Muslim women in Congress. Omar, who we talked about a lot on the show, is a state rep from uh, Minnesota. She was already the nation's first Somali-American legislator. And to go even further, I think the first refugee woman that's been elected to Congress. She's Minnesota's first woman of color to go to Congress. Hey, Minnesota, get on that. These women, too, were very supportive of each other's campaigns. Yes. Deb Helen was always referencing Sherry's Davids. And uh, Omar was uh, 
really supportive of her fellow Muslim candidate. Yeah, Taib from uh, Michigan. She was in the state Senate in Michigan. She had no opponent in the 13th Congressional District, which is part of Detroit. Guam elected its first woman governor, Lou Leon Guerrero, a Democrat. They haven't had an American, I mean, a, a, a Democratic governor in the, an, on the island of Guam. Don't which they is have pre- an all-woman mm-hmm. group an, of a, women? An all-woman legislature in Guam now, uh, which is a protectorate of the United States. Ayanna Presley is um, a, the Democratic congressperson, a Democratic congressperson from Massachusetts, the first black woman from Massachusetts to go to Congress. Um, this is an interesting take. Uh, Debbie Walsh from Rutgers Center for American Women in Politics. When you think about what is representative democracy, making sure the perspectives and experiences of the entire population are mirrored in those legislative institutions, whether at the state or federal level, it's important. Those experiences shape the policy priorities of those elected officials. We're talking about women's health. We're talking about education. Mm -hmm. We're talking about health care. We're talking about gun control. Things that people really care about more than anything else. People don't care about the wall and all that stuff. That's made up news uh, that they'd use to sell stuff. 84 women serve as voting House members, 61 Democrats, 23 Republicans. This has been the record since uh, 2013. 23 women in the Senate, 17 Democrats, two, uh, six women, two Democrats and four Republicans are governor, but now nine. Uh, let's move on here from this article. This article here, that was from USA Today, who had an excellent um, column today um, about, which I think I've got in here chewed up somewhere. This is from Glamour magazine um, by Maddie Kahn. A pep talk for Democrats. It's okay. We won. (laughs) Stop with the gloom and doom. A hundred women going um, to the House. Um, Andrew Gillum's fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Nelson's fighting mm-hmm. in Florida. Mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams is fighting. Kristen Simmons mm-hmm. is fighting. Counting all the votes is important. And when they start to yell at you, and I saw uh, Representative Matt Gates, who's kind of a sociopath from Florida, screaming at a black man today about the Gilliam recount. Well, and Mike Espy's hideous opponent. Oh, my God. She, uh, uh, here it is. I found, I found the woman's name, who was the other youngest woman. Um, and this article by Maddie Cotton and Glamour. Allow me to introduce another cause for celebration, the one with whom some are less familiar. Abby Fink Hour, the other woman under 30 who won last night, was from Dubuque. She defeated Republican incumbent Rod Bloom, only the third Democrat since 73 to hold the seat, when she decided to run for the House of Reps. Uh, she was a, a rep there for two terms. She was 24, saddled with student debt, and up against three men in their 40s, and she flattened him. Ocasio-Cortez and Finkenauer have their political differences, but both are about to launch careers in federal politics that could last decades. Both are women who have decided to dedicate their considerable skills and prowess to the creation of better opportunities for more people. When's the last time it felt like that happened? Exactly. So that's what's so great about this. Um, Lucy McBath, Anna Presley, Abigail Spanberger, uh, Mickey Sherrill, Lauren Underwood. Yeah. Several people... uh because the votes were counted so late, uh, more Democrats have won. Yes. Since the election, each day, more Democrats have been winning. Absolutely. Including um, Dana Rohrbacher lost his seat in Orange County, um, who is an evil, seditious, traitorous person who takes money from the Russians, who hates gay people. As as they call him, Putin's favorite congressman. He's been a blight on California politics for ages, and he got beaten by, um, how do you say that guy's name? Harley Rauda. Yeah, Harley Rauda. 
Uh, Florida may have turned blue. Um, we don't know that Bill Nelson and Andrew Gillum have lost yet. But what did happen was a, 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 an amendment passed uh, in their state that a million people that had their vote disenfranchised by Republicans will get that vote back. Convicted felons were not allowed to vote in the state of Florida, which is why they stripped the rolls. It was called Amendment 4. So a million people will be back on the mm-hmm. roll for 2020. And that's a huge... Both of these races, by the way, Gillum and... And I imagine in the next election, there will be more people who've moved to Florida from Puerto Rico who will then be registered to vote. Which is about Florida. half a million, is it? 400,000, uh, something like that? Yeah. And maybe more by that point. Yeah. Uh, Democrats flip state. This is from Paste magazine, if you want to read the good news. Um, as Jesus Christ said, the good news. Democrats flip state houses in big states. The Colorado Senate, Minnesota House, New Hampshire House and Senate, New York Senate, and Maine Senate flip to the Dems with no comparable gains by Republicans. Democrats broke supermajorities in the North Carolina House and Senate, as well as the Oregon House, and Governor Brown was reelected in Oregon, Kate Brown. No relation. Mm-hmm. State-level races always get forgotten, but from a policy perspective, America's federalist system allows for states to implement more immediately impactful policies than the federal government. It's so huge mm-hmm. that Colorado, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New York, and Maine are Democrat. Mm. And as they point out, no Republican House has flipped that way. So we're taking back over. Speaking of immediately impactful policies, the Democrats have four new trifectas, states where they control the governor, House, and Senate. Colorado, Illinois, New Mexico, and New York are under complete and total liberal rule. <laughs> also, I would say California. Mm-hmm. Delaware protected their trifecta. Their trifecta. Get creative, folks. Kansas. And the headline says here, Kansas, freaking Kansas. Every political (laughs) science major's got to read Thomas Frank's famed book, What's the Matter with Kansas? We remember that book because they went medieval. The state where um, the governor was so bloody awful brownback that they had to cut their school week down to four days a week. A study how the uh, Republican Party got poor white folks in Kansas to vote against their economic interests. It's a case study for modern republicanism. First, an openly gay Native American woman, Sharice Davids, is in Congress, took down a GOP. Secondly, the architect of Trump's fraudulent voter fraud commission, Chris Kobach, got obliterated in Kansas governor race. He tried to rig the election for himself and he lost. What's her name? Kelly? Laura Kelly? Is it Laura Kelly, the governor of Kansas? The governor of Kansas is a woman, a Democratic <laughs> woman. So exciting. And she beat Chris Kobach, so... the most evil, next to, next to Abrams in Georgia, the most evil, evil vote suppressor in the country. And, of course, <clears throat> the cat who wrote yes, the bill who Laura lost Kelly. in North Dakota, Laura Kelly. Uh, democracy was saved in North Carolina. The Electrical Integrity Project rated North Carolina as not a democracy because of the last decade of pure authoritarian rule. You may remember when they uh, elected a... Well, they've done so many things. It was because Obama carried the state in 2008. The state legislature freaked out. The Democratic Party fought back and won. Civil rights attorney Anita Earls, Democrat, won a seat on the North Carolina Supreme Court, ousting GOP Justice Barbara Jackson. The Democratic majority's 5-2 to two in North Carolina. The GOP changed three electoral rules to win this election. Instead, their efforts to rig election backfired. Spectacular. Um, it was hard to um, out-party the coalesce around one challenger, so no primaries, plus voter ID, plus many Democrats. Two measures were defeated that were opposed by five former governors that could only be called an attempted coup by the North Carolina GOP. Um, none of them went through. Both amendments failed. So democracy was saved in North Carolina. 
not in any small part, um, by um, Reverend Dr. Barber, whose moral Mondays and whose mm-hmm. constant He's campaigning. He's such an inspiration. Uh, yeah, on the steps of the State House every Monday for years and years and years. And we love North Carolina. It's a beautiful place full of lots of intelligent people. But their state legislature, their governor, and their Senate have been miserable. A 5-2 to two Supreme Court majority of Democrats means so much there. Trump's sanctuary city attack lost in Oregon. Um, that's not going to happen in Oregon. Immigration hardliners lost. Um, uh, let's see here. Two neo-Confederate, uh, Corey Stewart lost his race in Virginia. Lou Barletta in Pennsylvania. Um, Dave Bratt lost um, in Virginia as well. And Chris Kobach lost in Kansas. Those are all people who were absolute racist pig people. Mm-hmm. Michigan created a template for restoring voting rights with automatic voter, voter registration. A wealth of reforms that change the dynamic in their state and should be used as a model going forward. California, Washington, Oregon have it. Um, and uh, well done, Michigan, because Michigan was so messed with in, mm-hmm. in the presidential election. The red states voted for expanded health care to expand Medicare for all, Idaho, Utah, and Nebraska. <laughs> Three reliably red mm-hmm. Republican places. Health care, health care, health care. It's not the economy. The economy's not doing as well as they say it is. Obviously, people are hurting. But it hasn't tanked with 45. But they didn't even run on that. They didn't even think of running on that. They just thought of running on racism. Almost all people want to protect and expand health care. Yeah. That's, you know, why would you not? Well, because you're being paid money by billionaires to be a Scrooge. Jump on in. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, too, Massachusetts voted to protect trans community rights. Isn't that fantastic? Yes. There's, it was the, I can't explain to you how positive this whole election was. I mean, we don't have time to read everything that happened. And you're not going to hear it all in the mainstream news. But understand this. <coughs> Adam Schiff, that genius from over Los Feliz District here in Los Angeles, who's in Congress, is going to take over the Intel Committee. They're going to subpoena Whitaker as soon as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jerry Nadler, who, along with Velasquez in New Jersey, has been sensational about immigration is going to chair the Judiciary Committee when they reconvene. Mm-hmm. And he is going to grill people <laughs> like squids. Maxine Waters is going to yes. chair uh, the Finance Committee, and uh-huh. she's going to subpoena his tax returns, 45's tax returns. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, the complexion of everything has changed because you don't have, <coughs> excuse me, Devin Nunez and these morons, Gates and Jordan and uh, all these nutbags, um, who were abrogating their responsibility and their constitutional, um, uh, what they swore to uphold, um, they're gone mostly. Nunez won, which is just, I don't know how that bloody happened, but I think his power would be strictly corrupted. He well, might be called in front to testify as well. We also might see some censure yes. in the House. Yes. Jim Jordan needs to be thrown out of the House. He needs to be in jail. And Nunez needs to be thrown out of the House. But... Uh... I, I can't believe that uh, Dana Rohrabacher's seat has gone to uh, a Democrat. Yeah. yeah, and, and uh, Daryl Issa, who had retired, his seat has been taken by Mike Levin, a Democrat. Daryl Issa, for those of you who don't know, the richest member of Congress, 
um, a staunch Republican. He seemed to fade under 45. He didn't really care for that. He engineered the coup that gave us Arnold Schwarzenegger as a governor here. It was his doing because of his wealth and influence. He was able to basically oust Gray Davis in an unpopularity vote. So he's kind of an evil, dark figure here. Mm-hmm. Rohrbacher is openly a traitor to Russia. But <laughs> yes. Issa seemed like uh, kind of a billionaire um, meanie. But they're both out now. And dig this. Rohrbacher can be brought back in front of Congress oh, and yes. made to testify mm-hmm. for all of his transgressions. Mm-hmm. He's up to his ass in a meeting with Russians. He's collaborated with them for years and years and years. Volinskaya or whatever, who was at the famous, if it's if this is about Hillary in the summertime, I love it meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, he said that um, real estate people shouldn't have to rent or sell to gay people because, you know, they're gay. Um, he's got a lot to answer for. Um, and, uh, L.A. County lost its last uh, Republican district. That's right. Let's talk about what you did. Katie Hill, well, uh, what I did, I I just went and canvassed, but Katie Hill, who's 31, she's bisexual, she hasn't held political office, she was uh, executive director of PATH, a group that works for homeless people. She defeated uh, Steve Knight, uh, a Republican who wanted, who had talked about stripping Social Security and health care. So when I canvassed, I canvassed in Lancaster, which is a working class area, and I didn't have to uh, whip anyone up about Katie Hill. All I had to say was um, her opponent wants to take away your your benefits and your health care. And that pretty much sealed the deal on that one. Well, well done you for going out there. Um, so will you talk, a, those, little, talk uh, a little bit about canvassing, though? Because sure. I want people who listen, you know, they hear us talk about going to clinics and, and going to meetings and all that jazz. But canvassing is really the door-to-door work of It is really, really effective. And this one was the last push uh, to get it, the margin they knew was going to be small. I think it came down to about 4,000 votes. So to get people to just get out and and early vote on that weekend or uh, find the time on the Tuesday. The group of people that I spoke to, I knocked on about 50 doors. Um, They were mostly Hispanic and really they cared about schools and healthcare and they were just happy to know how, how convenient it was for them. Luckily their polling place was close. A lot of these people have one, two, and three jobs. Yeah. I even spoke to three people who had recently lost their homes and were living with relatives that were still took the time to talk to me about voting, which I couldn't believe they uh, could uh, get wrap their heads around to that as well as whatever else they were dealing with. And they were just happy to know that they could uh, didn't have to take time off work because our crazy voting situation put so much pressure on people who have long commutes and little time. Mm. So to let them know that they could just mail their ballot in or show up at the library on the weekend. Uh, I'm most uh, of the experience was really positive. The feminist majority and the human rights campaign had organized my group. We went out by bus this place is on the edge of the Mojave Desert. Where I went to kindergarten. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, L.A. is vast, so it was about uh, an oh hour, hour and a half away. Yeah, was it 70, 80 miles from here? 
and uh, we went off uh, two by two. Um, we had to get rides, uh, my partner Susan and I, to uh, the neighborhood, the development we were in. The development was just, you know, kind of uh, all I could uh, smell was just evil developers and, and, you know, that they had charged these people too much mm. for where they were living. But they were still gracious enough to talk about getting out to vote. They understood how important it was. One man said he worked on electric buses and that his union was going to all go in a group to vote. Isn't that great? Some yes. jobs were giving people time off. Yes. You, in the state of California, your employer must give you time off to vote. Yes. Uh, but it's not the same in every state. No. And in a lot of states, they disinfect, you know, like Georgia, wrapped up voting machines, broken voting machines, stuff out of town, all that jazz. We were given a script and we were asked to pretty much stick to it. I... I didn't at all. Well, no, Jennifer, <laughs> you're a creative person. You don't. But I mean, you know, these people, they, some of them, they were sitting in the dark to conserve. Uh, they weren't, they didn't have their air conditioning on. And um, so I would just uh, let them know that I was there to just get them out to vote and not hassle them for any other reason or ask them to buy something or whatever, why people were coming by their house. We had the option to say, uh, one of our notes that we were supposed to make is whether or not there was an American flag, which made me laugh because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, that's oftentimes not really a great sign. The only people that were hostile were two white guys. What did they say? <laughs> they they weren't on our list of, of uh, houses to knock on the door um one was sitting on the curb and he yelled at me that election day was wednesday and i i didn't correct him yeah famous voting day another guy he was in a, a he was using an office chair as a lawn chair and he was sitting behind this giant truck and he said i'm not voting there's no one to vote for mm-hmm. and i was like well have a nice day Sometimes people's commitment. <laughs> but then this night who she beat um, had had the seat for a while. She, Ms. Uh, Katie Hill ha- has no experience as a politician, but she's an activist. But this guy was openly embracing sort of, you know, Facebook hate groups and stuff. He's real racist. Mm-hmm. And evidently the county's big enough now that the demographics were shifting and and that people were motivated to vote for her she's 31 well there's always been uh since the rodney king trial i mean we've associated simi valley yeah. with right-wing white people yes. there's a lot of uh of white police officers that live in simi valley but like in lancaster where i was there are more and more uh hispanic families mm-hmm. It's more diverse, and they're Democrats. Yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, so, <laughs> putting people in walls so an and openly cages. bisexual thirty-one-year-old woman won from Hollywood. Yes, um, I think it's fantastic, and well done you for going out to Canvas. Whoa, I of course was busy um, doing the important work of telling knob gags to improv crowds all over this great <laughs> country of ours. And by speaking of which, in a terrible segue, we'll be in Australia for our Australian friends with uh, <laughs> Colin Mockery and Brad Sherwood. We're leaving uh, in two days' time, and we'll be down there starting on the 18th in Brisbane. Um, two weeks tour, and we're also going to Wellington, Auckland, and Napier, New Zealand. At the end of it, we're going to play Sydney, Brisbane, Perth, 
Melbourne. I can't remember where else. Anyway, come and see us there. You can go to greatproofs.com and find it there. And then uh, Jennifer and I will be in Paris um, on the 11th. I think it is. Yes, I think so. Um, to do the podcast uh, at the Shakespeare and Company, that'll be in the main room, which means to see, uh, say there's how many seats in that room, you reckon? 30? Yeah, about. 40? It's an intimate little room. It's really fun. We get high outside. Um, <laughs> there's a, It's a cute little warm room to be in at Christmas time. It's just lovely. I'm going to have glasses there so we can all look at fairy lights and, and different shapes like stars and uh, snowflakes and reindeer and whatnot. And then we're going to London um, to do... Two days at Albert Hall with them. Um, Jeff Davis, uh, Colin Mockery, Brad Sherwood, Chip Eston, yeah, that's right, TV's Deacon, Charles Eston um, from the television show Nashville. Uh, Josie Lawrence, you'll remember her from such great hits as um, the song to a lawnmower and whatnot from <laughs> Whose Line Is It Anyway? Um, a mammal called Clive Anderson who will sit behind a desk and get in my way and try to fuck me up through the whole weekend. And uh, Linda Taylor and Laura Hall. So it's a, an all-star cast, three nights. It's the 30th anniversary of Whose Line Is It Anyway? I started on the show when I was nine. And uh, then the two nights after that will be at the... Um, no, the night after that, we'll be right, at the Soho, Soho doing the podcast. And then the night after that... There you are. Shakespeare is... Oh, December 11th. I was right. At 7 p.m. At 7 p.m. And the tickets are free. You just got to call them or go online or whatever. Shakespeare and company in Paris. Then the 17th is Soho House, I think. I mean, Soho. Not the Soho House. The Soho <laughs> Theater. I might be drinking at the Soho House at some point. But the Soho Theater. And then that Wednesday, that week, um, we'll be with the Comedy Store Players. Um, that's your Richard Vaughn, your Jesse Lawrence, Lee Simpson, Andy Smart, Neil Malarkey. Who am I forgetting? Merton probably won't sit in that night. I don't think yeah. he stays Wednesdays. Um, Paul Martin won't be there. But the rest of us will. So you can come see us there. And we're also going to go... Lee, did you mention Did I say Lee Simpson? I said Lee Simpson. Len. I I also... uh, uh, We're going to go see our very good friend, uh, Jim Sweeney, um, uh, who was in his team with... uh, We're going to see Steve Seen as well. He's going to come to the show. Uh, But we're going to go see our friend, Jim Sweeney, who, as you know, from the old British Who's Lines, is one of the great improvisers of all time and a longtime member of the Comedy Store Players and a good old mate of ours. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer. And the mail carrier picks it up. Just click print mail and you're done. It couldn't be easier. We use Stamps.com for all of our shipping needs at Smartest Man HQ. Why wouldn't we? It's fast, convenient, and works like a charm. Right now, use Smartest for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Smartest. That's Stamps.com. Enter Smartest. Um, a couple more first because it's so exciting. Sylvia Garcia and Veronica Escobar became Texas' first Latinx congresswomen. Jared Paulus became America's first openly gay governor in Colorado. Um, uh, Joe, Joe Neguse was the first black congressperson elected by Colorado. Um, Chris Pappas became the first openly gay congressperson elected in New Hampshire. Letitia James became the first... Black woman attorney general of New York. She's going to take over for the awesome, Barbara awesome Underwood. Barbara Underwood. They call her Tish, <laughs> but she's listed by her full name here. Do you realize how important it is to have a black woman be attorney general of New York? Johanna Hayes became the first black woman elected to Congress by Connecticut. We already mentioned Ms. Presley in Massachusetts. 
Um, 19-year-old Carolyn Haywood was elected Wisconsin State Assembly, the youngest legislator in the United States. Then, of course, there's our Girl Scout, mm-hmm. who's in the state legislature in New Hampshire, Angie Craig, first lesbian mother in Congress after winning Minnesota's second district. How many gay women are in the Congress yeah. this time? It's just fantastic. Katie Vermeer is bisexual. Mm-hmm. Kristen Simmons is bisexual. Mm-hmm. Angie Craig is lesbian. Sharice Tammy Davids, Baldwin. Tammy Baldwin. It's just fantastic. Um, Christy Noem became South Dakota's first female governor. Look at that. Wow. Young Kim is the first Korean-American woman elected to Congress. First Korean-American woman. Do you know how many Korean... Oh, my God. L.A. is... Uh, her name is Young Kim. Lauren Underwood, first black woman to win Illinois' 14th district. And, of course, we've had Ebony Ficanauer and Sydney Axey, the first woman sent to the House by Iowa. Iowa never sent any women to the House. It's... By the way, that's in Paste magazine if you want to uh, read about it. Um, those two great articles about all the firsts. Uh, this is from um, the USA Today. Uh, and it's called Money Messaging Trump. Ugh. Six lessons learned from the most tumultuous midterms in a generation. First of all, these weren't tumultuous midterms. This was a call to arms by the good people of the United States to save healthcare and democracy. If that's what you consider tumultuous against the face of people who blatantly lied that there was a caravan of people full of bad guys who were going to attack our border. Or who were locking up voting machines so people simply couldn't vote. Or moving voting places out of town so that people couldn't vote. Yes. Or uh, openly suppressing... They actually moved the polling place out of Dodge. Out of Dodge. The people had to get the hell out of Dodge. Um, So here's a couple takeaways. Um, A college diploma. The gender gap, the tendency for women to vote more Democratic men is familiar. Now, a sharp divide of education... A new breach between white voters who have a college degree and those who don't. African-American voters, by the way, at all education levels and all Hispanics typically vote Democrat. Not all. Many. Let me put it that way. Um, Whereas white people, um, the people with college degrees um, are switching over to the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't know how to put that in any, any other way than white people with college degrees are finally rising up a little. Obamacare is recovering. Um, you, you heard about the three states, uh, Idaho, Utah, and Nebraska, that uh, voted to expand it. Republicans were on the defensive about their vote last year to weaken Obamacare's protection by allowing states to waive some of the law's requirements. That's what they were running on, was destroying people's health care. And if you may remember in the run-up to the election, they kept saying it was the Democrats that were going to do it. They absolutely flipped it and mm-hmm. lied about it. Um, 45 did it. A million senators did it. Everyone openly lied about this. And it cost them. It cost them. Um, at the end, they were promising not to repeal it, but to preserve it. But they offered few specifics about how they would do that because they don't meet or talk about policy at all, ever. It's simply there's an army of migrants coming to attack the border. It's simply Mexican children have to be put in cages. It's simply women are evil and they're murderers and stuff like that. Um, more small money was spent on this election. Um, several candidates, notably, um, didn't take uh, dozens, in fact, all across the board, took no money. Uh, Mm -hmm. for many giant big um, activities, corporations, or PACs. And I think that's the new way that we're going to see the new model. And then, of course, women roar. Well, and how do you maintain these lies, uh, these Republican lies, when you have refugees in office (laughs) and you have women and gay people in office and trans people? 
You can't. Um, Ali Maynard, if you want to go, this is just for the Schadenfreude. Um, Ali Maynard on her um, Twitter site went through every single candidate that Trump backed <laughs> and went through all of them that lost. His strike rate was 28%, you guys, 28%, which means that's right. 72% of the candidates he endorsed bit the chewy one. They chewed the big toy. I'll name a couple. Lou Barletta, he went all in and held rallies in Pennsylvania, lost to big uh, Bob Casey. Trump uh, tweeted, Lou Barletta will win. And she wrote, <laughs> Ali Maynard wrote, wrong again. I just want to read a couple of these because it's so much fun. Um, uh, 45 back candidate Jay Weber lost to Democrat Mark Sherrill in New Jersey's 11th congressional district. Um, 45 treated Weber would get the job done and I will help. And then she noticed it did not help. <laughs> um, Matt Rosendale lost his race for the Montana Senate. He flew to Montana many times, 45, to hold rallies for him, wasting millions in taxpayer money. Mm. Pete Sessions lost to Colin Allred in Texas after holding his seat for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Corey Stewart got buried by Tim Kaine in Virginia. And Corey Stewart wrote, um, 45 wrote, congratulations to Corey Stewart for his great victory for senator from Virginia. Now he runs against a total stiff Tim Kaine. <laughs> who is weak on crime and borders. Don't underestimate Corey. A major chance of winning. It, I think it was 70-30. Uh, okay, yeah, it was a wipeout just... of what we would call an old-fashioned waxing. Um, Bob Stefanowski lost to Connecticut governor's race. Um, and then she notes, due to another useless total endorsement from Trump. <laughs> Uh, Mike Bishop lost to Democrat Eliza Slotkin in Michigan 8 after voting for the Trump tax scam. Um, if you want to go, oh, and then Rohrbacher, just to end. Fellow Putin employee Dana Rohrbacher loses his super liberal, his seat to super liberal Harley Ruda, who's a mm -hmm. gay rights activist, mm -hmm. a Medicare reform person, a gun mm -hmm. reform person. And then she wrote, what a great win for America with an exclamation point. <laughs> Because he wrote, 45 wrote, Dana Rohrbacher's been a great congressman for his district. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's, he may go to jail is how great a congressman oh, yeah. he was. Um, getting to some of the news here. I just uh, We're not really going to talk about 45's abortive trip to visit Putin in Paris, where he uh, hid in a hotel room, God. holding his thighs in anticipation until the moment when Putin appeared. And then he smiled again, skipping out on the Veterans Day. Remembrance of World War One on the centenary of one of the most horrible events in the history of humanity um, is not just egregious. It's an abrogation of all responsibility. It's a total lack of self-awareness. It's tone deaf. It's the most tasteless possible thing you could do to not walk down the Champs Elysees with all of the other world leaders to to see the the leaders of Germany and France, the two countries that protected themselves against the Russians in the cyber war mm -hmm. and had legitimate elections, mm -hmm. to see them lay the wreath. And him be nowhere to be found, and then him to sit huffily um, through all of the invocations. And then when Macron finally said nationalism is the opposite of patriotism, after 45 has been claiming and declaring himself a nationalist. Nationalist means racist, mm -hmm. nationalist means anti Semitic, globalist means I hate Jews. Mm -hmm. I'll just decode all this for you. Nationalist means I hate people of color, and I'm not doing anything for anybody except myself. Globalist means I think the Jews are cabaling to control the world, which, as you know, is very difficult to do when there's only a couple million of you in a world with five billion people. And uh, so his, his appearance there was just shocking 
Shocking affair. And it was dutifully, a gross embarrassment. Oh, my God. A dutifully reported that the weather was bad, and that's why he didn't go to the cemetery. The weather wasn't that bad. You saw it. It was sunny. And they Everyone else managed to be yeah. there. Yeah. I think he went. I mean, you may disagree. I think he went just to see Putin so they could have that lunch. And he wanted to see Erdogan at the, the luncheon, and mm. Erdogan played him the Khashoggi recording, evidently. Oh, God. But we didn't get to hear any of that. I can't believe that he had a party at the White House to celebrate the midterms. Mm -hmm. What was he celebrating? We've been reading. I didn't even, I stopped before I got to the end of that list of people he endorsed that lost. I mean, what are we celebrating here? He, everything he says, um, uh, 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 the Saudis are wonderful people. He likes them very much. That means Prince uh, um, Slamane. Uh, um, uh, Paul Manafort's a wonderful guy. We know that Paul Manafort did terrible things to his wife and family. His daughter changed her name. Um, uh, his uh, ex-son-in-law uh, was just arrested in L.A. last week for fraud. Real estate scam, right? Yes. Manafort's son. Um, son-in-law. He, he's a wonderful guy. Um, uh, uh, Don Jr. is a good kid. He's a 40-year-old millionaire with five children who just divorced his wife because he's cheating on her. Um, he's a good kid. Um Don, Dana, Don Jr. is looking to get, be indicted oh, soon. We're praying and hoping every that we're baking a cake here at, uh, at the Porpoise. <laughs> the balloons. Dana Robacher, um, forty-five, insisted was great for California. No one would say that he was roundly. I mean, the man's as corrupt as they come, and a sh and everybody knows it here in California. It's just openly known that Dana Robacher's a tool of the Putin administration. He's apologized for them. You may remember when they annexed the, uh, uh, the Ukraine and invaded it violently and took it over and then shot down the jet. He defended Putin for doing that. That's who Rohrbacher is. So anything that 45 says by the way of endorsement means that you're probably like Whitaker, this, this new acting AG, um, a creep, a charlatan, mm -hmm. possibly a pervert, certainly crooked. Bottom of the barrel. Yeah. It, Promoter of hot tubs, was it? Yes, and ripping off veterans. April D. Ryan wrote a column for the um, Washington Post this week. Um, Abby, let me, I want to get her name right. Um, what? The, the, Trump had a real rare week with the press. Phillips. He's Abby Phillips. Um, Abby Phillips, um, Yamichi Alcinder, and April D. Ryan are three African-American women who cover the White House. As you know, this was the week when Jim Acosta, for asking the question about, um, first of all, he suggested that the caravan was a thousand miles away. Then he um, suggested that um, Mueller might be of some concern to the White House, at which point 45 screamed at the top of his voice, it's a hoax, and had the mic stripped from him and then took away his credentials. So he won't be covering the White House for the foreseeable future. There's several solutions to this. Um, one that Eric Baylor suggested that I also saw on Twitter today, which was, Eric Bailett writes for Media Matters and quite perceptively about the media. Send all black women mm. to the press room. And if you don't have any black women on your press corps, hire Why? some. Why don't hire you? some right now. Make the next press conference that he has to attend a room full of black women. And don't stand for having Jim Acosta's credentials stripped away. No. As CNN, quit covering him. Just stop. Only cover news, not anything he says, not things like the weather was bad. The weather wasn't bad. That's not a fact. That was, you know, spinsterville. Um, he left the country in a huff, tweeting angrily the whole way. He insulted a bunch of reporters this week, but particularly Abby Phillips, who he said, you ask a lot of stupid questions. He's, in, he's insulted Yamiche Alcindor, and he's insulted April D. Ryan. Over and and, and over. each time he does that, they get death threats. Yes. So this is from her column. Um... 
When Trump denigrates black women, he's sending the message that he doesn't see us equally. Every morning I walk through the White House gates. I thank God for the privilege of doing the job that I do. Trust and faith that my listeners put in me and for bring home the truth. Every day I try to remember, to the best of my knowledge of my family's history, I am only five generations removed from the last known member of my family to be enslaved, Joseph Dollar Brown, who was sold on the auction block in North Carolina. I carry that knowledge with me because I owe it to him to cover the presidency the best way I know how, no matter how much pushback I get. January, she said, you may remember, Mr. President, are you a racist? After his response to Charlottesville, after shithole countries, after get that son of a bitch off the field, and after what the hell do you have to lose, it's more than a fair question. It's necessary. As a black female journalist, I'm going to keep asking it and continue seeking answers. That's my job, and I am up for it. It would behoove you, my darling listeners, to follow Abby Phillip, Yamichi Alcindor, and April D. Mm -hmm. Ryan mm -hmm. on Twitter and let them know that yeah. you support them. Jim Acosta as well, John Harwood, mm -hmm. um, Jacob Soboroff, um, and that wonderful other reporter, Daniel Begno. Um, there are some people doing sensational work on the beat, mm -hmm. baby, on the beat. Jacob Soboroff has covered the children in cages uh, those terrible prisons more than any other reporter. And I can David Begno in Puerto Rico. Absolutely sensational work. April D. Ryan, Yamichi Alcindor, and Abby Phillip cover the White House with great candor. And candor's not uh, in a lot of supply right now. Abby Phillip said, um, she asked Trump if he wanted to rein in the new, uh, if she wanted the new AG, Whitaker, to rein in Mueller. Trump yelled at her and um, what a stupid question, what a stupid question, but I watch you a lot, you ask a lot of stupid questions. In Friday's press gaggle, he called April Ryan nasty and a loser. Mm -hmm. He called her a loser on television. He's openly cruel and mean to black women mm -hmm. who he perceives as inferior to him. Maxine Waters was stupid. Obama was um, Kenyan and illegitimate. Andrew Gilliam was a thief. <sighs> Um, well, Stacey Abrams was unqualified. She went to Yale. Yes, she's overqualified. Um, which reminds me of Michelle Obama's book, which comes out Tuesday. Yes, and, very exciting. Uh, she says that his birtherism uh, caused them uh, so much grief and that she feared for her family. Yes, uh, and that she will never forgive him. Right. And then his response was, he'll never forgive Obama for gutting the military. Obama's military budgets were bigger than any budget has been under 45. So it's all just lies and retribution. And you, fuck, you well, know. And, and Orange 45 has taken money from cancer research and FEMA to fund the caging of children at the border. Yes. Um, on a positive note, Debbie Walsh wrote an excellent op-ed for the USA Today about what this means, the giant wave of women coming into Congress and how the complexion has changed. Um, women don't have to wear a power suit and act like men to get elected now. Women um, were shown um, in their gym clothes. Women were shown in their combat uniforms. Women were shown crusading. Women were shown being mothers. Women were shown being women. Mm -hmm. Um and the dynamics changed. There's Me Too women that ran. There's lesbian women that ran. This is, um, the name of the article is Year of the Women 2. Record election success for women that goes way beyond the numbers. I just wanted to read you a couple sentences. Women had more freedom to run for themselves. 
Wear a suit, don't talk about your kids, and don't share any of your human vulnerabilities. Now we've seen Me Too stories about growing up with drug-addicted parent, carrying student loan debt, siblings struggling with mental illness, homelessness. Running as themselves makes these candidates more accessible. Women scored a structural win that has the potential to help more women run in the future. Luba Gretchen Shirley of New York mm-hmm. petitioned the Federal Election Commission to use her campaign funds to pay for campaign-related child care costs. That's never been included before. Can you believe that? Isn't it great, though? It's wonderful that she did that, and, and no one thought that that, that could be done. No. She, she's awesome, uh, um, Luba Gretchen Shirley in New York. Uh, everything's changed because of this. Really mm-hmm. profoundly, structurally H- changed. Humane. Yeah. If you want to read about it, um, you can go to the USA Today. Debbie Walsh is her name. James Comey discussed sensitive FBI business on his private email. I'm not even going to read you the story. Uh, I'm not even going to read you the story. Well, how strange. Mm -hmm. Everyone does it. He just took time out of his busy, bloody schedule to queer Hillary's chances to um, be president because he felt the pressure from the New York office or whatever. There's giant fires going on in Northern California and in Southern California. We're... Breathing in the Woolsey fire as we speak, our, our brothers and sisters up in Northern California have had a terrible time of it with the campfire. Um, you can go on. Um, I'm on PBS NewsHour. They put a very excellent article out with the very simple name of "How to Help the Victims of the California Wildfires." If you go to that page, um, it has many different charities here. Uh, let's see, GoFundMe, Salvation Army, Shasta Regional Community Foundation, um, Impact Your World, Wildfire Firefighter Foundation, the Haven Humane Society. There's loads of animals out there. Mm-hmm. California Volunteers, um, Firefighters Charitable Association. Also, there's Charity Navigator. They have a whole page uh, for the California wildfires, too. It's a real serious situation yeah. here. We saw a friend last night who had to evacuate. She was part of that terrible enfilade of BMWs swarming in from Malibu, but not to minimize the <laughs> no, awfulness. People are losing their homes, and their livelihoods. there's people of every stripe yes, of in Malibu. And uh, Malibu is the home of weirdness. People keep llamas and giraffes and all... Stanley the giraffe. We don't know what happened to Stanley. No, we don't know what happened to Stanley. They, they put livestock down at the beach because they don't have anywhere else to put it here. Neptune's net is still there, so bikers will have a place to go. If you want to get drunk and do some meth in the bathroom and pick your own crab out, Neptune's net is probably the funnest place in Ventura County. Um, It's a real extensive thing. 45's comment that because of the poor foresting laws and that that's why the forests were on fire. First of all, there is no forest in Malibu or Ventura. We don't have a forest here. We're scrub desert arroyo next to a beach. So understand that. That's not a forest. We've had a drought made worse by climate change. And the federal government controls all the forestry stuff that he's talking about, cutting us off when his crappy tweet about that. How cruel. How awfully cruel. You saw the subsequent tweet, right, where he wrote, we're really sorry about the... Clearly he didn't didn't write it because it didn't have any exclamation points. Um, The recount begins in Florida. Um, They're trying to stop it there. The recount is ongoing in Arizona. And by the way, it's two different races in Florida. It's Nelson versus Scott for senator. And um, it's Gilliam versus DeSantis, the noted racist. And I'm not making this out. Andrew Gilliam had the best line in American political history in the last five years when he said, I'm not saying DeSantis is a racist. I'm saying racists think he's a racist, (laughs) which is I couldn't even write something that good. It was so bloody good. Lady Parts Justice doc is going to come out real soon. Um, Our friend Ruth directed it here. Ruth Lightman. Um, Let's see here. 
when is it when is it expected to attend they sh- they had a little um um viewing in new york you can go online though and you can look at um the preview for it and it has lots of people in it uh, margaret cho and uh, sarah silverman helen hong uh, joy l johnson all of our buddies um it's called doc nyc it's part of that festival mm-hmm. and that's where it's going to air doc nyc is november 8th through the 15th um again ruth lightman directed it we we know ruth because she shot uh, in mississippi and she shot in west virginia on both the gigs we're on and um it's it's a documentary about the Lady Parts Justice League and their um, extensive um, trips across America and how awesome they are to everyone. Do we want to read any of this David Rothkopf thing? Well, maybe a couple. Yeah. Just to get back on forty five for a second before we get to the um, the obituaries this week, of which there are many. David Rothkopf is um, uh, a scholar. What can I tell you? Who? On his Twitter bio, it says, visiting scholar Carnegie Endowment, and then fantastically, author of this and that. <laughs> um, I wanted to read you a couple things because he's a, a cool assessment of why 45's acting the way he is right now, which is to say, cornered on a bunch of fronts, beleaguered on a bunch of others, and with a full awareness, no matter how deranged he is on um, diet, soda, and hamburgers, and whatever bizarre drugs his doctors are giving him, that the realization that on January 3rd, um, the world changes for him, mm-hmm. that it's going to be nonstop subpoenas, nonstop committees, nonstop investigations into his family, their holdings, not just no, Russia. Nothing good will come out of it for him. Mm-mm. He's he's beleaguered on a bunch of different fronts here. The, the Russia thing is only one minor portion of the malfeasance and illegality. No one knows the skeletons in his closet better than him. No one knows the crimes he's committed. Um, his, the, the uh, firm grasp on the wrongdoing that was the daily bread of the Trump org, his children and close associates. After an election that was humiliating, regardless of what pundits say, greater democratic gains in the House than any since Watergate and big wins at the state level, he's haunted by his uh, knowledge of what coming investigations may uncover. He does not know what Mueller may have. It may not implicate him. He may have a plan for sidestepping it. But without the shield of complicit House of Representatives and a slowly building wave of state and federal investigations of his charity, his abuse of the emoluments clause, his company and his associates, he can see the writing on the wall. And this is interesting, and I thought it was very well put. Democrats may not press for impeachment for now, nor honestly should they. They, like Mueller, should wait to build their case. They have time now. They will not and should not hold back. Trump will let Ross and Zinke go as a way to avoid the embarrassment of their inevitable prosecutions or at least the detailed revelations of their wrongdoing. He will try to put officials in place to protect him. Whitaker is a prime example. That example now has Trump rattled because it reveals the incompetence and those around him to perform Mm -hmm. even the basic tasks of vetting that would be necessary to have a team that could protect him. Further, Whitaker is a Trump wannabe, hyper-ambitious, not-so-bright partisan with a shady past, dubious businesses, bad practices, association with racists like Steve King, who was re-elected in Iowa, crooked dopes, Sam Clovis, Mm. you remember Mm -hmm. that good-looking, dashing Sam Clovis? (laughs) And he looks like a cartoon from the 30s. Grandstanding attacks on the LGBT community. Whitaker's appointments on constitutional violation of the law. He can see, Trump can see his own best plan will come undone. Further, the power of his office, the prestige he tried to rent, is no longer working. 
His first move was to seek celebration by those who'd sell it to him, like the Saudis, but that's been undone by the Saudis' own brutality and immorality. And full view by the sense that Trump will never challenge them. This one I thought was very significant. He's come to see the Europeans and Chinese neither fear nor respect him. He's come to see his association with Putin, the one that helped him get the job, is now a serious liability. The president who made his appeal for one wall has sought to wall off America, is now watching the walls fall around him. His earnings circle are leaving. His big-name hires will soon depart. His first and second and third team lawyers have departed. The ones that are left behind are a pretty mixed bag. His family will be soon fractured as they try to defend themselves. His party's weakened. His control of the house is lost. Kushner, I've read, and I don't know if this is absolutely true, has been secretly meeting with Mueller. That they, wow. I, I keep reading that, I mean, he's got to be prepared for the shit hitting the fan, Well, too. he was the only one with a decent team of lawyers. He's the only one with real representation. Don Jr. and, and Trump's lawyers are pukadukas. And Giuliani's been uh, roaming around Armenia and, Gathering U- money. and Ukraine. Yeah, he hasn't been on campus for a while. And now, now. he's in a divorce court. Mm-hmm. He's a little preoccupied. And also when he goes on TV, it's just like watching him snarl and snap and spit and bite. And what did he say? He was going to save Ivanka with a lance if he had to. He was going to ride it. I'm not kidding. I mean, you know, (laughs) the world ridicules and rejection. They figured out his games. They see through his lies and racism. He knows himself. His base of bases is comprised not of America's best, but of its worst. He calls them the super elite, but he can smell his own bullshit. Mueller and prosecutors in New York. And the House and courts across America are stalking him, closing in on him. And worse, there are ghosts, the one in his head, the ones who know the secrets he fears most to tell. Once we thought there might be a secret tape that would embarrass him. But two years has produced more to disgrace him than any tape with golden showers or goats dressed as his sainted mother. That was Rothkopf's <laughs> mind, not mine. He knows his own past. He sits alone in a Paris hotel room, unable to find the wherewithal to even withstand the rain to honor the fallen of World War I. He hides himself away as he does in the White House every day now, going out into public only into meetings where the crowds can be counted on to cheer, and that is fewer and fewer places these days. Abraham Lincoln once said the only way America could be brought down is from within. Trump's presidency has been cited frequently as the greatest example. Lincoln's warning can be extended further. He'll be brought down from within by the ghosts of his own past, The secrets only he knows, the walls have crumbled. So too, very soon, will this man, weak, corrupted, cowardly, ignorant, racist, incompetent, pathetic, excuse for a man. The Um, air is faintly (laughs) Macbeth-ish. What is it is about to happen? (laughs) Uh, We saw Karen Finley yesterday. Jennifer's good friends with Amy Shoulder, her editor. And uh, we went over to uh, Book Soup. Karen's got a new book out that's just tremendous called Grabbin' Pussy. (laughs) And uh, I can't do it any justice, but I'm going to read you a couple stanzas from this one here. (laughs) Well, some folks are feeling fucked over these days, in particular white liberals, black, brown, and marginalized. Other bodies have endured U.S. policy since the first Thanksgiving. Karen Finley, Aftermath. When my liberal mood is upset... I just can't take the news, the media, climate change. Like a day when there is tragedy or something upsetting. 
your candidate's emails being hacked or the elections rigged or your pussies grabbed or the walls being built or the farmer's market is out of frise. On Dave will not do. Ridicchio will not do. Sorrel will not do. Fiddleheads will not do. What do you mean the farmer's market is out of frise and champagne vinegar? What do you mean freeze-dried mangoes out of stock? The world's falling apart and I was planning on having a frise this weekend. Everything green is against me. What kind of farmer's market is this? No baby arugula or baby kale. Did you hear me and do you know who I am? For God's sake, is this or isn't this the Silicon Valley Union Square Westchester, Marina Del Rey, or the North Shore. I want free range and grass fed. I want broccoli slaw and chia sprouts. I'm ready for a scene. My breakfast flax seeds are going to spill. I want homegrown and local farm to table. I want a multicultural ankle bracelet at a discount. This can't be happening. I buy fair trade, sustainable and artisanal. This can't be happening to me. Um, I'll stop there on that. The book is full of humor, free association and fantastic poetry. Lawrence Dorland Getty said poetry is the closest. What is it? The, the, the quickest connection between two people is poetry. Mm-hmm. John F. Kennedy said, where power corrupts, poetry cleanses. She talked about why she wrote a book of poetry about this. It's about Charlie Rose. It's about Hillary. It's about Harvey Weinstein. It's about 45. There's actual clips from discussions of the Chris Matthews conversation about why women need to be punished for getting an abortion. Um, And she said, you know, you have to go back to poetry to express yourself. Just stating Mm -hmm. facts is... Well, the, to further ideas and to make, well, when when a couple of women had questions at the end of the book reading, and she said, just by sharing ideas, you know, there's been so much uh, coming at us since this election, uh, and so much hostility that people have had to deal with, that uh, I found it rewarding that she went back to events from uh Two years ago. Mm-hmm. Events from the election. Yes. That long poem about Hillary having to use the yes. bathroom during the debates. Yes. Where is she? Because we haven't had time to take it all in and, and really think about all the abusive things and how we're uh, just overcoming them. Mm-hmm. And just this week talking about the way he treated reporter Phillips, reporter Ryan, and uh, calling everyone a loser on TV and calling... Abby Phillips, stupid to her face. It's, it's abuse. It's abuse. It's abysmal. Um, anyway, the book is really entertaining. Her name is Karen Finley. What press is it on, Jennifer? It's Can you so see? funny. Um, O-R? If you get a chance to see Karen Finley... O-R Counterpoint. Or R Counterpoint is the press. Um, you should go see her because in person she's she wears this pink pussy jacket <laughs> to read the poems. And... Um, her, I'm doing her reading no justice. Well, she's delightful and dynamic. Well, she's a great performance artist. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she's a great actor, so. She was part of the NEA 4. Back in the 80s. Nine, 
90s? Early 90s? No, I was just no, in the late was 80s. It was, when was uh, it? Maplethorpe and her and... Because she was attacking... It was Jesse Helms who found yeah. her immoral. Because she wanted to talk about what women have to go through. Willie McCovey, the swirling in the heavens. Um, a couple of quick stories about Willie McCovey. I won't go on forever. We've got a lot of the other people to cover here. Willie McCovey played first base for the Giants when I was a little kid. And he batted behind Willie Mays in the lineup. They batted 3-4. And they hit up millions of home runs together. Um, then he got traded uh, for a brief sojourn with San Diego where Ray Kroc, who owned McDonald's at the time, tried to give him the nickname Big Mac after the hamburger, <laughs> which never really stuck. In San Francisco, he was always known as Willie Mac or Stretch or 44. Um, they named the Inspirational Award uh, the Giants' biggest inspiration on the team every year. Not their most valuable player. But the player who gave the most in the clubhouse, the player who was the one you could go to to tell your troubles to, the player who never let everybody down, the Hunter Pence type players, mm-hmm. the players that uh, Dave Dravecki, when Dave Dravecki won and, and lost his arm to cancer and was still uh, balls to the wall, is called the Willie Mack Award. Um, you can go online and watch Mike Kruko um, talk about um, uh, McCovey. He talks about McCovey um, hitting a home run off him. The umpire not seeing that the ball was fair because he stumbled <laughs> because the ball curved around the foul pole, calling the home run back and him striking McCovey out and McCovey looking at him and going number 19. <laughs> then when he sees him years later, goes who it's number 19 mm-hmm. here. The guy who took home run 522 away from me with that crappy call. Now I saw him play from 1968 till he retired in 1981. He played in four decades or he might've retired in 80. Um, I was at his last game at Candlestick. I was pretty high. I'd been to the dentist that day. <laughs> I think I got sick later. I remember I ate a chocolate shake and sat in the bleachers. And he hit a single to right, and we all stood up. I remember a doubleheader in 78 where he launched a tater over the right field wall. I remember a game with my dad in like 71 or 72 against the, I think it was the Pirates, where he hit a ball completely out of Candlestick Park. There used to just be bleachers in right field. And he could really powder the ball. Willie McCovey had this tremendous swing. He was really tall and elegant. And when he swung out, he was all the way spun around like a corkscrew, his legs down to the ground. Willie Mays had a uh, you know, bat-high-held stance. Willie McCovey really cocked the bat high and just let it rip with his long arms and legs. He's all torque. Pitchers in the late 60s refused to throw the ball over the plate because he hit the ball right back through the pitcher's box. They call it a box. It hasn't been a box since the 1880s, but I don't know why. <laughs> it's a mound, but they call it the box. He ripped the ball right straight away to to the pitcher if you put the ball over the plate. So he tended to pull the ball to right. Like Ted Williams, they moved everybody to the right side of the field for him for several years. Dave Bristol started it on the Reds, and they carried it on. They would literally put the third baseman where the shortstop is, and everybody else went on the right side, and there was no left fielder. And he would bump the ball to third. He was a brilliant player. He was baseball savvy. I don't think you hang around Willie Mays that long and not pick up some game. Willie Mays was the smartest player that ever played as far as strategy goes and, and leading pitchers on and not swinging at a pitch early in the game or swinging at a pitch early and then later knowing they're going to come back to you with that pitch and then tagging them for that pitch. That was the kind of strategy the Giants hitters employed in those days. Also, they had insane power. Um, McCovey's so beloved. He was more beloved than Mays, I think, in San Francisco. And I hate to say that because Willie Mays came from New York. And the writers, when he first came, were mean to him. And um, they he was never good enough for them. And also San Francisco had Joe DiMaggio. And Joe DiMaggio was our guy who was the greatest center fielder of all time. Well, Willie Mays was a greater center fielder than Joe mm-hmm. DiMaggio. Um, 
And I think Joe DiMaggio adored Willie Mays, and Willie Mays' greatest idol was Joe DiMaggio. So the symbiosis of it all is amazing because Mays worshipped DiMaggio when he was a kid. That's all you heard about on the radio and on in the newspaper was in the 30s. He grew up in the 30s, mm-hmm. in, the, in the 40s. Joe DiMaggio was the living end. They went to the World Series like 13 times. Um, but McCovey, first game was for San Francisco. His last game was for San Francisco. His last game was against the Dodgers. His first game as a rookie, he had two triples and two singles against Robin Roberts, who went in the Hall of Fame. Two triples and two singles. Hit 352 over 50 games, won the rookie of the year, was MVP in 69 when I was nine, hit two home runs in that All-Star game, which was unforgettable. I was a little kid. I watched it on TV. I was so proud of him. Him and when uh, Bobby Bonds uh, was MVP of the All-Star game in 73 were my two favorite years. And then was comeback player of the year. Had a crappy year when he went to Oakland and San Diego, came back with the Giants and hit 28 homers. So he was rookie of the year, MVP, and comeback player all in one <laughs> lifetime. No scandal about him, no drugs, no anything, nice person, had no knees, was basically wheeled in and out of the park the last few years. Always a member of the Giants organization, and every player would say that he was always supportive. Well, I was just going to say, it sounds like he always had time for the young players. Yeah, he's a good guy. He was a right guy. Uh, anyway, Willie McCovey, stretch. We will miss you. He was a lovely uh, player. He gave me many exciting thrills at the park. And uh, the biggest moment of his career was when he hit the line drive off Terry in the 62 World Series with Mays on third and Alou on second. And uh, Bobby Richardson leapt up and caught it. And Charles Schultz immortally had Charlie Brown say in the comic strip that week, why couldn't McCovey have hit the ball five feet higher? <laughs> Tyrone Gale was the press secretary for Senator Kamala Harris, and she was he was a veteran of Democratic campaigns. He's swirling in the heavens. He left a couple of weeks ago. Um, he was only 30 years old. He worked for Tim Kaine, and he was a spokesman for the 2016 presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton, former Secretary of State. Tim Kaine said, by the way, Tim Kaine was the one who just barely beat the Republican that 45 endorsed. <laughs> I'd go to an event, and the next time I'd be back, and Tyrone wasn't with me. Everyone would say, how come Tyrone wasn't with me? Where's Tyrone? Mr. Gale and Mr. Kaine crisscrossed Virginia for the 2012 campaign, bonded over sports, um, and Kaine officiated at Mr. Gale's wedding in May to Beth Foster who's a legislative assistant to Senator Patty Murray from Washington, who's the Democrat from Washington. It was during the time in the Clinton campaign that his cancer was diagnosed. He went into remission, and then it returned. He was optimistic, and this is what's beautiful. Ms. Adams worked with him uh, on um, uh, Kane's campaign and um, Hillary Clinton's campaign, as well as at um, the Senate. He was never cynical and would never let the cynicism of politics get to him. Hillary said she was heartbroken over the loss and that he was one of the fiercest fighters we will ever know. Tyrone Gale was 30 years old and a beautiful human being. Um, he was never cynical. He had cancer and he was never cynical. Intozaki uh, uh, a wrote for Color Girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. It got a Tony Award in 1977. She was a spoken word artist who morphed into a playwright and uh, the New York Times calls her play uh, canonical. I'm mispronouncing the word. How would you say it? Canonical. Canonical. Thank you. She was 27 when Color Girls opened at the booth in 76. 
Ms. Shanghai was a Broadway rarity. She was black and a woman. Her unconventional play was a hit and nominated for a Tony. A series of searing feminist monologues for seven black female characters named for the colors of the rainbow. Ms. Shanghai played the lady in orange. It inspired generations of playwrights coming up behind her. Um, Lorraine Hansberry is the only other playwright that comes to mind immediately that had the kind of amazing impact on theater. Mm-hmm. And she was so young also. Oh, my goodness. They, right, when they... Well, she died at, what, 30-something? I mean, when her play came Right, out. when she wrote Raisin. Raisin. Um, uh, Shange uh, influenced everyone here. In her work, she was a champion of black women and girls. In her trailblazing, she expanded the sense of what was possible for other black female artists. For Color Girls, produced by Woody King at the New Federal before going to the public earned admiring reviews in an OB, but the forthright personal discussion of trauma and abuse experienced by black women was taken as um, by some as an affront to black men. There was quite a ruckus about the seven ladies in their simple colored dresses, Ms. Shange wrote. I was truly dumbfounded I was right. Then and there deemed the biggest threat to men since cotton picking, and not all women were in my corner either. She was born in Trenton, the daughter of Paul T. Williams, a surgeon, and Eloise Owens Williams, a professor of social work. She adopted the Zulu name as a young woman. She went to Barnard and USC, where she got a master's in American studies. She participated in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. A novelist and poet, um, she had a stroke a few years ago uh, and hasn't been able to write. She adopted Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage and her children. She won an Obie Citation, 15 plays, 19 poetry collections, 6 novels, 5 children books, 3 essay collections. One of her novels, Some Sing, Some Cry, told the story of African-American music and dance through seven generations of a fictional family. Um, in 2010, it was a star-studded film that Tyler Perry directed with Kerry Washington, Felicia Rashad, Annika Noni Rose, Whoopi Goldberg, Mishangi explicitly told Mr. Perry that Medea could not be in Colored Girls. <laughs> <laughs> it was a rite of black, a passage for black actresses. The playwright, Alicia Harris, whose God is, said, before she switched to playwriting, she played the lady in yellow. Um, Bernard Laurie Parks, also a veteran of the show, played the lady in blue in a Texas production. Um, it's impossible to overstate how important Ntozaki Shange is um, to American art and letters. And uh, mm-hmm. she will be missed greatly. She's a lovely playwright and a wonderful person. Um, let's see here. She, Wally Triplett. Uh, speaking of sports and Willie McCovey, Wally Triplett was 92 years old. He played for the Detroit Lions, and he was the first African-American to appear for an NFL team after getting drafted. The Lions um, celebrated Triplett for his contributions on and off the field. As the first African-American to be drafted and play in the NFL, one of the true trailblazers in American sports history. Also, he was a superb player at Penn State. He was on the Nittany Lions, and he was the first black player. What year was this? Uh, In the 40s, late 40s. um, In 49, I think, was when he went up. He played the Lions and the Chicago Cardinals. He was 5'11", 173-pound halfback. Um... He was also on the special teams. He was amazing on special teams. Um, uh, And uh, his specialty was punt returns and kick returns. 18 kick returns for 1,664 yards and a touchdown. That's 18 for 664 yards. Um, I remember staying in a different hotel. Oh, here it is. His greatest game is 1950. Um, 
uh, he got 294 yards on four kick returns and a 97-yard touchdown return against the L.A. Rams. The record remained in place until it was broken in 94. I remember staying in a different hotel than my white teammates in Green Bay. The walls were thin. When the people in the next room said, you know, there are Negroes next to us, we clearly heard it. It was a different America then. He served in the Korean War. And as you pointed out, um, when Penn State was going to play in their bowl game, they were told, it was Texas, was it the Sugar Bowl? Mm-hmm. Told them they couldn't bring um, Triplet with them, Wally. They're running back. They're star running back. The Nittany Lions were going to be denied the chance to play in the Sugar Bowl because they had a, a uh, colored player, as they called them then. They had an African-American player on their team. And the Nittany Lions, to a man, went no. Mm-hmm. And they brought him. Uh, Wally Triplet is um, all... Over the yard, great. Sunny Fortune. Um, I like the headline here on NPR Music. Stalwart (laughs) saxophonist of New York. Um, Sunny was named Cornelius, and this is uh, from a record called um, Sterengetti Minstrel. It's called the Afro-Americans. He's a superb sax player, an acolyte of John Coltrane, and uh, had a stunning career. Soprano, tenor, baritone, clarinet, flute, avant-garde, swinging jazz, fusion. He was in Miles Davis Band on loads of his own albums. McCoy Tyner, the Coltrane Legacy Band, Reggie Workman. He never lost his own voice. The New York Times said, a saxophonist who draws out the full tonal qualities of the instruments in the same way Duke Ellington's great baritone saxophonist Harry Carney did. Richness and completeness of tone are combined with great facility in almost everything he plays. He's from Philly. Music school trained, which I love. He went to the Groundhog School of Music where Coltrane and Dizzy went. Um, He moved to New York in 67 on the advice of Coltrane, who mentored him in Philly and sought out Jones. His other sidemen included Mongo Santa Maria, the brilliant um, percussionist, and Leon Thomas, the avant-garde jazz singer. He worked briefly with Matt Adderley, and Buddy Rich, and they describe Buddy Rich's band as high octane. <laughs> here, let's hear another brilliant cut by him. I'm going to fade this one down here. That oh, not very much fading on that one, was there, Craig? <laughs> and this one's called "Long Before Our Mothers Cried," and it's a really beautiful. This is some of his uh, 70s work. It's really beautiful. A lot of great 90s albums as well. Uh, Four in One, a Thelonious Monk tribute album with uh, Kirk Lightsey on piano. In 96, a post-bop triumph with um, John Hicks and Sana Debriani. Um... He also did a tribute band called Four Generations of Miles. He's kind of an archivist, kind of a scholar. And master of the woodwinds. I'm going to attempt to fade this in a fading manner. There we go. Because we have one more jazz giant that's joining Sonny Fortune. Sonny Fortune made it to uh, 79. Roy Hargrove very, very tragically succumbed to liver disease. Kidney disease. Sorry, kidney disease. Um, 
and it was only 49 years old and is swirling in the heavens. This is off an album with the questionable title of Ear Food, but it's a lovely track called Strasbourg saint Denis that's so uptown. Let me read you a little thing that... Um, Wynton Marsalis discovered him, or went to see him in high school. He was already a sensation at his high school. In Texas. And he went to the, another person educated in music. Uh, he went to a performing arts high school in Dallas. When he was 16, he was already the star of their jazz band. This is Roy Hargrove. And considered the greatest trumpeter now, basically. Let's just swing a little. Wynton Marsalis wrote about him, as you know, as the leader of the Lincoln at ja- uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra and a giant in his own right, as is everyone in his family. He was 16 years old, phenom playing leader trumpet parts with accuracy and improvising original solos with gleaming nuggets of melody, swimming in harmonic sophistication with generous helpings of down-home blues and soul. Roy played piano, wrote songs, sang, and had a great sense of humor. To top it off, he possessed an unerring sense of time. Kids in the school just loved him and they were excited about his great musicianship and about the magic they experienced every day listening to him and playing with him. He played with an unusual and infectious combination of fire, honesty, and sweet innocence. He was diligent about his playing technically and emotionally, playing with an uncommon depth of feeling with a very developed internal sense of that which is unspeakable about the intimate. A Roy Ballad was always exquisite. Just as many in the continuum of our music poured information and aspirations into him, Roy gave selflessly to others, particularly young musicians. He did everything he could to ensure the circle would not be broken, at least not on his watch. His participation in the New York scene reminded me most of Woody Shaw. Roy continued Woody's tradition of sitting in all around town and of playing and encouraging everyone to play, not just with solos, but with knowledge of songs and advice, and the feeling of, quote, we're in this together, and this is worth doing, and it's valuable. While I'm truly saddened as I write this, I'm encouraged by the life and legacy that Roy left. He meant it. Rest in peace, baby. Everybody wants to be a cat. Roy Hargrove was the cat. He won Grammys. He played for Common, Eric Abadu, D'Angelo, Herbie Hancock, Wynton Marsalis, jazz, African, Latin, R&B, soul, pop, funk, and hip-hop. I've been Greg Proops. I've been Jennifer. We'll see you next time. Out on the long, lonesome road. Hopefully in Australia, kids. <laughs>